Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Oh, here we go, boys. that sound. This is a good one. All right, Tom Seawid, welcome to the Full Scale Outdoors podcast. Thanks very much for doing this. Yeah, thanks a lot for inviting me on. Yeah, I saw a post, um, I believe it was on Facebook, and uh it was about, and, I, and I'd reached out to other people before in the past on this subject and never really got any responses. So I was very excited when you actually uh, responded and you were willing to, to sit down and talk about this. But the, the drama playing out in the Pacific Northwest with the salmon and the, the sea lions and the seals and just that whole kind of dichotomy out there because I feel like there's – there's a lot of nuance that isn't like there's so many tendrils to this story. Like it's it can't it's not even just like seal salmon as far as I understand it, but I'm a Midwesterner looking at it from the sidelines and you boots on the ground. So I'm gonna go ahead and kind of just turn it over to you and go ahead and kinda like officially introduce yourself, you know, give your accolades and then just kinda give us your pitch and then we'll talk about it. Sure. Okay. So my name is Thomas Seawid, S-E-W-I-D, and I'm the president of Pacific Balance Marine Management. And it's uh, the British Columbia, Canada, First Nations, or otherwise known as North American Indian group that have rights to harvest seals and sea lions for food, social, and ceremonial purposes, but we're not allowed to sell them. So in 2018, I was asked to be the sort of the spearhead for starting the organization. And what we wanted to do is work with our fish and game, which we call the Federal Department of Fisheries and Oceans, otherwise known as DFO, Department of Fisheries and Oceans, to work with them to give us license and so that we can do all the steps so that we can continue harvesting seals and sea lions, but increase that harvest based upon another fishery, so to speak. So just like cod or herring or salmon, there's a quota allocation per year that we can harvest and sell them. 
And we have markets for every part of the seal and sea line, from the whiskers to the penal bone to the blubber, meat, oils, bones, skulls, you name it. There's, we have established markets and have tapped into existing markets throughout North America and the world. Unfortunately, in North America, in 1972, with the environmentalists starting up with Greenpeace, one of their main campaigns was the clubbing of the seals in eastern Canada on the ice flows, the white harp seals. So they lobbied and protested and threw bags of blood at people wearing these white fur coats, uh, celebrities and so forth. So the Canadian and the U.S. government said, let's stop the seal hunt in the East Coast, but we're also going to stop the seal and sea lion shooting throughout the West Coast of North America, from California all the way up to Alaska. They said, we're going to develop this North American Marine Mammal Act, and it's going to be illegal for anyone to shoot, kill, uh, harass, or sell seals and sea lions. And because the commercial fishermen and others were harvesting seals and sea lions up until 1972, there was a market for the hides and the meat. We kept the balance in the ecosystem by our hunt, just like we do with wolves and coyotes and other animals, bears. We keep that balance. And if we look at the North American Indian culture and heritage, all tribes speak about the creator, especially my tribe, the Kwakwakiwak from northern Vancouver Island, British Columbia, they speak about how the creator created the animal kingdom with all the animals, natural and supernatural, from all elements. And he left the world. And when he would come back, he would find out that without him creating humans, the animal kingdom was out of balance. There was overpopulations, there was extinctions, endangered species, starvation, warfare, you name it, within the animal kingdom. So in my tribal legends, the creator, Ekegekame, we call him, would go to the northern part of the continent where the ice fields never melt, and he would meet with his brother, known as Transformer, and he would order him to fly across the world. And when he came across animals, natural or supernatural, he would transform them with his magic into human beings. Those humans would take a wife, they would have kingan on them, children, and in turn, they would harvest animals for food, social, ceremonial purposes, and they would help bring that animal kingdom back into balance. And it stayed like that for tens of thousands of years in my region, the northern Vancouver Island. But then explore, the explorers came, and they brought disease to North America and the other Americas, and the indigenous Indian communities were decimated by the diseases up to the high 90%. My tribe was 96% eradicated oh, wow. between contact in 1921 by smallpox, influenza, tuberculosis, venereal disease, and bullets. So that was indicative <laughs> of all of North America. So when the Indians were removed as the animal kingdom harvester to keep balance, your ancestors, the newcomers, did it for furs, for meat, for food mm -hmm. for their dogs, to protect their fish nets and so forth. And that harmony stayed in balance up until the 1964. There was actually a $5 bounty for seal noses in Canada. And I understand in Washington as well, where if you shot a seal, you'd cut its nose off and you'd throw it into a jar with salt. And my dad said and when he'd go into a port after many months of commercial fishing, 
you, they, people would bring their jars of salted noses to the fish and game office in the community and they actually had a metal sifter box. They would sift the salt out and they would count the noses and say, okay, you got 10 salted noses, here's $50. In 19, when I was uh, young, my dad said uh, $50 in the mid-60s was like having three or $400 nowadays. Yeah. So it was that kept that balance in place. But then again, the worst invasive species to North America, the environmentalists, came about. <laughs> and they said, God forbid, look at the little round-eye whisker faces. We can't shoot those. So they pushed even harder for the laws to be changed so that 1972 in Canada, in the West Coast, British Columbia, we weren't allowed to sell the hides that we harvested from seals anymore. And then that's when the population, people quit shooting them. And people were afraid to shoot them because they heard some people got charged and lost their guns and had to go to court and had substantial fines. So no one really paid attention because the humans had knocked the seals and sea lions down and sea otters so far down in numbers it was uh you know no one registered to anyone you never saw them in rivers or estuaries or lakes up rivers and then all of a sudden in the mid-1980s and just to backtrack i'm a commercial salmon fisherman since i was 10 years old full share as a crewman and i'm 57 now so i've commercial fish for over almost 46 years and in the early 1980s we started to see these increase in seals and sea lions not so much the stellar sea lion which is indigenous to washington state and uh, british columbia and alaska but we started to see this news hour in british columbia about seattle area ballard locks where these invasive California sea lions had migrated up to the Ballard locks and they were hammering the steelhead trout that were trying waiting for the locks to open to go into the river system the swan and the other salmon and they couldn't shoot them because god forbid we can't upset the invasive species the environmentalists you know they might get all upset on us and we get fired <laughs> so they'd throw these sea lion bombs these underwater firecrackers basically and they would use air horns and they would use flares and of course the sea lions just stuck their head underwater and you know right, yeah. went about their business eating and they finally said okay enough's enough we're starting to lose our steelhead run here and uh Lake Washington system. So they trapped this Horace, he was called, and his buddies, and they brought, tagged them, branded them with numbers, and brought them back to Northern California and released them. And they joke about saying that the vehicle that brought them to Northern California, the sea lions beat the vehicle back to Seattle because oh, wow. they showed back up again. And now here we are in 2022, and the uh, Ballard Locks, which enters into the Lake Union uh, uh, river system and lakes, the steelhead are extinct, and so is the sockeye or red salmon run. And the uh, silvers, the coho, the chinook, and the pinks, and the chum salmon will be next. So Horace and his buddies came back, but they, when they went back to California, they told all their California's male sea lion friends, hey, there's no California sea lions in Washington State and British Columbia. Let's go, boys. Where now we have over 35,000, they guesstimate, between Washington oh, State wow. through into British Columbia. And now we have an increase of the harbor seals in British Columbia and throughout the entire Pacific Northwest. 
where the numbers are way past historic levels. So what they're called is pinnipeds, walruses, seals, sea lions, and the pinnipeds, which are the California sea lions, the uh, indigenous, not indigenous, but the ones that live here called stellar sea lion and the harbor seals have proliferated like bunny rabbits and their populations have exploded where now they're not only in our estuaries, they're up our rivers, they're up their hatchery gates. They're even in the lake some hundred miles plus up some of our river systems where they were never recorded before. And people go down to the docks and they buy trays of frozen herring and other fish that are cheap and they feed the seals and oh, round eyed, beautiful whisker face. And of course, you know, they don't want to shoot them because they're cute, but they don't understand what's going on. And what's going on is, and I know a lot of the listeners that are from the Plains area of North America, we know about the demise of the great buffalo herds to starve the Indians away and for harvesting the hides and the meat and the blubber and the tongues uh, back in the day. Well, we almost made the great buffalo herds go extinct by over-harvest. Right now, the seals and sea lions in their harvest to eat, which is natural, of course, but there's too many. The eradication of our salmon, our steelhead trout, our herring, our smelt, also known as hooligans, our endangered dinosaur prehistoric sturgeons and other fish are being eaten to extinctions comparable, if not greater, than the demise of the great buffalo herds across the Great Plains. So that's what's going on on the coast right now in regards to an overpopulation. You know what's crazy to me? I saw a picture not that long ago uh, of a sea lion eating a, a pretty large sturgeon. Like, I I didn't know that they, that they were targeting sturgeon, too. I mean, I kind of figured it was just salmon and smaller fish. But, man, those yeah. things, that's a yeah. pretty big feat. Oh, they're a scourge. You know, they just, basically what they do is they just uh, kill a sturgeon, suck the caviar out, and uh you know, 500 to 800 pound sturgeon just gets wasted, all that meat. Wow. And even the juveniles. It's pretty bad. Like the Fraser River in Vancouver, British Columbia, where the mouth is, <laughs> the sturgeon in there, they've been listed as endangered for quite a few decades. And now we have thousands of sea lions in that river system and at the mouth just hammering those sturgeon. And, you know, you hear the stories, and it's not just that river, it's California all the way up to British Columbia as for, in regards to sturgeon, but from California all the way up to Alaska in regards to our salmon, you know, it's just, they're being decimated, not so much Alaska because up there, they're more frontier. They believe in, you know, winking at a seal and sea lion and pink misting them. And, you yeah. know, so well, we got up. And I think there's, there's probably more bears up there and they might have more natural predators too up there. I would think um, maybe I'm wrong, but I would, I feel like they've, you know, more polar bears or maybe more, you know, coastal brown bears. I guess I don't know if the brown bears are eating seals or not, but. Well, the polar bears aren't where the sea lions are. They're where the walruses and uh, sure. and harp seals are up in the north. And I think it's gray seal as well up there. But, yeah, on the British Columbia coast, especially, why being an Indian, there is no 49th parallel border between Canada and the United States. Under the Jones Act, there is no border for us Indians. So, to me, the Pacific Northwest is basically California up to Alaska. So, But because I'm a registered Indian from Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Canada, uh, I'm, you know, British Columbia focused, but I'm getting calls from people from Idaho where the Columbia River goes up, uh, 
California, Oregon, Washington, uh, Alaska, and even other countries in the world that, hey, you've really done this phenomenal job of educating people about balance and how we do have to start harvesting, be it culling or harvesting for for food and markets, uh, the seals and sea lions. And people are taking notice, but being an Indian in Canada, we're more Canadian than Canadian, we're untouchable. So in other words, uh, quite a few laws, we, you know, break them, so to speak. We go to court and we bring it all the way up to our Supreme Court. And we have about a 95% success ratio of us Indians winning in Supreme Court. So we set a precedent that we can use uh, what you guys call jack lighting. We call it pit lamp and using spotlights at night. We can do that in British Columbia and elsewhere in Canada because we fought for that right. It's, you know, we're not out there hunting for recreation or trophy. We're out there to feed our families. So we get our laws sort of are more better are changed for our benefit. And that's one of the things I would, I'm probably going to have to do. We're probably going to have to have a martyr, an Indian get, charged for shooting 100 seals and 20 sea lions and if they do prosecute which i highly doubt they will because even the fishing game in canada and the u.s they're turning a blind eye at the indian shooting seals and sea lions because they know it's a problem mm-hmm. and they know that if they drag the indian to court it's going to cost millions and they're going to get their asses kicked anyway and lose <laughs> and the indian's going to win <laughs> you know i i i can see how like you know your average person that's pretty disconnected from you know, nature, they probably live in big urban centers and, you know, you can see how they can be drawn to these cute little cuddly creatures. I, I love your term of, of the invasive species, the environmentalist. I think that's great. Um, but, you know, so you can kind of see, but it's, it's coming from a place of ignorance, obviously. I do think that you have a, um, that the indigenous people in the First Nations, they, they have a very unique position that they can come from because if you and not to make it like super political right or left but you're more left-leaning people that might be more environmentalist they're gonna they're gonna have to kind of they're gonna hit a wall right so they're gonna be like we got to protect these marine mammals but but in doing so they're going to have to step over your culture if that makes any sense. And so like, I feel like they're going to be at odds with their ideology a little bit. Well, I'm not worried about it because I've basically sent notice to environmentalists in Canada and U S and they've backed off. And just for the listeners to give a little background, um, not only am I a commercial fisherman and an Indian, but I was a safari club, uh, international grizzly bear, mainly hunting guide for many years in British Columbia, I used to go to the Safari Club International Conferences in Regional and Vegas. We used to have the booth there that I used to, the company I used to work for. So I'm well-versed in the hunting part. So knowing that, you know, we hunters are getting pushed backwards and losing a lot of rights because of the environmentalists, I'm doing the seal and sea lion issue, but I'm also helping to reinstate the trophy Bear, grizzly bear hunting in British Columbia because the environmentalists got our provincial government to ban hunting of grizzly bears except for us Indians and uh, you know it's uh, I lost thousands of dollars of annual revenue because of that so I have a chip on my shoulder when it comes to environmentalists so getting to that one of the things I did is I got 
sent out information to the environmental organizations that if I see any of their leaders, like Paul Watson from Sea Shepherd, David Suzuki from Suzuki Foundation, uh, Ian McAllister from the Rainforest, Great Bear Rainforest Conservation Initiative, and others, I told them that I'm going to go buy a bunch of U.S. cavalry from the 1800s blue cowboy hats, and I'm going to put an ostrich plume in it, It'll have the insignia for the U.S. Cavalry from that time on the front. And I'm going to buy yellow scarves to go with each one. And when we get in front of cameras and you guys are protesting the seal and sea lion and sea otter harvest in British Columbia or elsewhere, I'm going to get you in a headlock. I'm going to wrap that scarf <laughs> around your neck. I'm going to slam that, head on, that hat on your head. Because if you are modern-day Indian killers like General Custer was, all you want to do is kill us Indians with poverty. You shut down logging for a great bear, for grizzly bear protection. You shut down logging for spotted owls and marbled murelets where they would find out 15 years later that that was a bunch of bunk and BS. There was no reason to shut down logging for spotted owls and marbled murelets. You don't want us to call out the wolves or hunt them because we know they're decimating our caribou, moose and deer herds up in Canada and elsewhere. And, Every time you stop something, you take away a job from an Indian. And the Indian communities in Canada, compared to the other numbers for suicide, death by alcohol, death by overdose from drugs, and the negative factors that go to with alcoholism and drug addiction and uh, poverty, such as losing your kid, kids to social services and so forth, are far higher than the Canadian normal for Indians. And it's because if you damn environmentalists given us poverty. So the environmentalists know that if I ever get on a TV camera with David Suzuki in a headlock and I'm slamming that <laughs> cavalry hat on his head with an ostrich plume and choking him blue with that uh, yellow scarf, the world will stop sending donations to their environmental causes well, and campaigns. You would to hope. me, there is no environmental organizations. They're environmental corporations, and I yeah. will watch them down if I have to. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, you look at these environmental groups and the amount of money that they rake in versus the amount of money that actually you know goes to anything of, of substance is – it's abhorrent. Like it's just a money grab. These people make so much money and they're taking advantage of people and they're, they're taking advantage of people with, you know, good hearts. They're ignorant, but they're, you know, their hearts in the right place. They care for animals. They just don't know how it actually really works. But then you bring up this other subject about, you know, Indians and first nation people that they're, the harm just keeps the waves just keep rippling out into into the ecosystem you know we just they just put the wolves back on the endangered species list um here in minnesota and it, it's ridiculous like i've gone the people listening to this show know i've gone on this tirade a million times but um when they first were fighting it i did some research and minnesota has more wolves than all of the western states combined and we don't have a hunting season we had in wyoming and idaho and montana they can they can hunt and trap like it just doesn't make any sense we had we have so many wolves even when they were extirpated from the lower 48 minnesota always had some wolves because they just were right there in the canadian border they, they crossed like super easy but one of the other things i wanted to bring up going back getting back on um topic is 
you know, one of the lazy arguments that you'll get from a lot of environmentalists or animal lovers is like, well, they were here first. You know, it's like, well, what would happen if, you know, this is only a problem because we built these dams and that stockpiled the salmon and then so the seals can take advantage of them where they pool up here. It's like humans are always the problem and they always like to say, well, they were here first. Well, when it comes to you, Tom, they can't say that because your people were always here. Yeah, and we're here since the dawn of our creations. So where, you know, where is that line? You, you don't get to use that argument of they were they were here first. It's like, no. And I've always said, like, humans have a right to the landscape, too. Like, we, you know, anybody, whatever your belief system, whether it's a creation origin or whether it's evolution, we are a product of that. We, we have just as much title to the land as, as anything else. And, yes, we have to live in balance and we have to live in harmony with that land. But it, people they get in this ideology where like, what are we supposed to do? Just magically float off of the ground and not have an effect on anything around us like that. That's the most unnatural thing ever. Everything has an impact on the world around it. That's, that's what an ecosystem is. So the way I look at it, I look at it like Putin, you know, Putin sat back and said, okay, diplomacy is not working. Threats are not working. So I'm just going to send the boys in and start squeezing triggers and paint misting. A war is a war. And that's what we have to get to that Putin level here in North America, especially the U.S. Like, I'm just, I live here in Kent, Washington. That's where I am right now, just south of Seattle. My wife uh, is from here, and I've been down here uh, for with her for 15 years, but I'm always working or pink misting seals and sea lions up in British Columbia. And I'll be going up there again money to do some more pink misting. But anyway, uh, you know, I'm and here in the U.S., and I know Putin's definitely terrified of the U.S. He knows he's, he can't walk into that bar because that bar's got the U.S. cowboy yeah. in there. Yeah, 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 whoops yeah. Putin asks if they, yeah, he acts up or crosses borders. Well, how come the U.S. has this mentality of this, and they are so strong? Yet there's so damn chicken shit to grab a gun and go on the banks of a river in Washington State or Oregon or California or Idaho and start pink misting like a son of a gun. Get charged, go to court, and more than likely win because everyone knows there's an overpopulation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we it's the only way I see in the U.S. I'd like to see the Indians step up, but unfortunately your guys' Indian war is still going on here in the Pacific Northwest. You know, it's just so much animosity between the native Indian tribes and the uh, non-Indians over the gill netting of or food, the salmon in the rivers. And they're so polarized, the native Indians and the non-Indians here in the Pacific Northwest. I don't think the Indians are ever going to step up until the non-Indians say, "Okay, look, um, Tom's been reaching out in his Facebook group, Civic Balance Marine Management, since 2018, and he's been sharing his posts on all of our Pacific Northwest fishing and hunting groups and others. He's sat down with our Washington state senators to get the Marine Mammal Protection Act wheels spinning to be amended in a congressional hearing. Tom's really doing a lot for an Indian, but he keeps telling us, quit hating on the Indian tribes. Every time I put a post up, someone's in there whining away, going all caring about, well, what about the Indians and their gill nets and the rivers? No, 
they're not they're compared to the what the seals and sea lions are consuming it's a drop in the bucket compared to the seal and sea lion decimation of your salmon and other fin fish in your river systems and salt water in the pacific northwest so never mind acting like a bunch of whining care karens reach out to the indian tribes and say this is the washington sports fish charter association this is the snake river conservation remove the dam society and we have 190 members that aren't indian we would like to meet with you native tribes and how can we work together to get the seals and sea lions removed from our rivers so that you guys can continue the food fish with your gill nets and we sports fishermen can go out there in our boats and instead of having a few days or a few hours to fish each year we can now have like it was back in the 80s and beyond where we had basically 12 months of the year it was open for sports fishing recreational fishing we can get back to that level but the one thing we're going to have to do is put our daggers away and end the indian war and the indians and the non-indians of canada and the u.s must sit down together around the shared fire or conference and start learning to cooperate you know the ukrainians did it and look what they're doing to putin they're kicking his ass in many places that's what cooperation and unity gets you you think you would have a you know a shared enemy with with the pinnipeds you know think that would bring people together again i we have similarities here in, in the midwest you know they they do a lot of you know the walleye here in minnesota is like top fish it's actually the minnesota state fish it's the most pursued game fish in the state and then the native americans they net them and sell them and that's part of their their industry and that's a very contested issue for sure like we have a lot of the similar issues here but fortunately we don't have seals and sea lions (laughs) otherwise i think we would have that common ground you know that's definitely the bigger picture and then going back to the environmentalist thing, um, you know, they, they run into some other, I feel like they run into some other problems where they have to pick and choose. Um, like if, if I would, if I was arguing face to face with one of them, one of the things I would bring up to them, it's like, well, why are you choosing seals and sea lions over killer whales, over orcas? Because there are populations of orcas that are strict salmon eaters and those populations are dwindling because the salmon are dwindling they don't eat seals i see you've been, I, I see you've been drinking the environmental kool-aid that's a bunch of <laughs> <bunk and> BS. <laughs> really well it, it, enlighten me i've 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 read about it i mean they don't they yeah. don't mention anything about the seals though that's the thing when i read these art- articles they put the they put the blame for the lack of salmon on humans and dams and overfishing but they never once mentioned seals and sea lions much like articles i've seen where moose are in demise in minnesota they never say anything about wolves it's always some other issue they never bring up these these you know it's these because pre- these of predators. the predators it's because of politicians and the bureaucrats especially those that are the head of our uh, fish and game departments it's political suicide for them to endorse support and sign off on a call or even increase a harvest to basically be a you know bring the balance since the line you know we deal with that in british columbia all the time so it's it's we can't rely upon the politicians and bureaucrats they failed us 
They continue to fail us. They will always fail us. And that's why I go back to it's up to us to unify. Now, in unification, you know, we're going to go lock horns with the environmentalists. But, you know, have you ever, like, I remember one of my friends, he wanted, he became a Mooney back in the early 80s. And we tried to, back, back I guess it would be called intervention. We had, like, an intervention. We tried to find <laughs> a reason, speak some sense into him to go quit being a Mooney, quit drinking the Kool-Aid, you know. And uh, he, he couldn't do it. And then finally, one of the guys got up and walked over, grabbed him by the throat, gave him about six good shots up straight and smack in the face and knocked some sense into him. When he came to, then he started to, you know, maybe you guys are right. And I got to look into this. And within <laughs> yeah. two months, he quit being a because he got his big cousin whooped his butt again. So we can't do that to the environmentalists as much as we'd love to. We can't. We'll get charged. Right. But we, but the, the lesson from that is don't waste our bloody time and take what works. As soon as the environmentalists come out, phone up Tom and go, hey, Tom, we need you in Minnesota. These environmentalists don't want us to have a wolf call out here. We need to pay your because you're a consultant now because of all your experience. We're going to get you to come out here to stand on a podium and we're going to get you to say what needs to be said to these uh, environmentalists. And we need you to drum up support from the Minnesota Indian tribes to support the campaign to to get a wolf call going to protect deer and moose or what have you. That's the only way. You need what mm -hmm. we call in my tribe, Wenagulis, ultimate warriors. And I'm from a society with my tribe called Hamatsa, H-A-M-A-T-S-A. -A -A. I'm not going to say what it is. You can Google Hamatsa from the Fakwakiwak <laughs> Nation, and your eyes are going to go wide and go, oh, be Jesus. That guy's, no wonder why he's such a fierce warrior and speaker. I've been trained and groomed to be a, a warrior. And that's why with the environmentalists, Soon as I got that out, I had uh, Ian McAllister, who stopped the grizzly bear hunting and the wolf hunting in British Columbia, in uh, wolf hunting in a lot of parts, and he poured his Kool-Aid by the 45-gallon drum down the Indian leader's throats that they have to, to support him to stop wolf hunting in their territory, stop grizzly bear hunting. And damned if it didn't work. Now those Indians are sitting there going, Holy schmuck, we never used to have grizzly bears on Vancouver Island. We have legends that say that no grizzlies are allowed on Vancouver Island. Now the government tells us we have over 46 grizzly bears on Vancouver Island. And these tribes are talking, going, holy schmuck, we got grizzly bears eating our white spirit bears up here. We have a spirit bear tourism resort and industry, but soon we might have to just do whale watching because the grizzly bears are migrating out to our islands and our territory, eating all of our white spirit bears, which are a form of black bear. So the Indians are getting a slap upside the head like that guy did in that intervention. They're getting a reality <laughs> check that drinking the environmental Kool-Aid's biting them on the ass big time now. And then all of a sudden they have this ultimate warrior who's a fellow First Nation called Tom Seawood using the modern-day moccasin of the internet and social media, especially Facebook, and he's proclaiming to all that we Indians have been lax, stupid, and drinking too much environmental Kool-Aid. Now look at the predicament we're in. And people are listening to me, and right now seals and sea lions are being shot by the thousands in British Columbia. We are harvesting the herds to bring balance back into our water systems because we know the politicians, the bureaucrats, the 
Indian leaders have failed us. And it's up to us to take the safety off and squeeze that trigger and create pink mist and see the blood bubbles go down when we sink another pinniped. And now we're calling them out. And that's the only way. You can't go sit down and talk to people and rhyme and reason with them. They're too round eye, whisker face. Oh, cute little puppy wolf. We can't kill those. And the only way is to, to shoot and pink mist while they're standing there screaming when it's being done. Yeah, you put out, you produced a, and put out, you shared with me this video. It was very well done, and uh, I'll definitely put it in the show notes here, and I'll share it on my social medias for sure. Um, and in that, you know, you had uh, a stat where there was, you know, some wildlife biologists were like, they need a, to protect these endangered populations of, of salmonoids. Like, they need, like, almost 100% cull in certain areas because they're just decimating these, these fish. It's, it's Dr. Carl Walters. If you uh, go to YouTube or to my, even my Facebook group, Service Balance Marine Management, I have it posted in a lot of the posts. But Dr. Carl Walters' pinnipeds on uh, YouTube, and I'll maybe share a link with you. But anyway, he's a head fishing game for a British Columbia biologist, and he's an elder. And uh, he, him and other scientists have said that there's what they've identified as salmon specialists. These are seals and sea lions that go to choke points like uh, rivers and hatchery spillways, uh, narrow channels in the salt water on the migratory routes of the juvenile and adult salmon. And they specialize just in salmon. And that's where the science says 100% of all salmon specialist seals and sea lions and choke points in the salt water, in estuaries, rivers, streams, creeks, and lakes need to be removed. And the unfortunate thing is most of those estuaries and rivers and hatcheries are in our urban centers, our towns yeah. and cities. So I developed a seal trap that uses Kona Bear 330 wolf traps, and we uh, basically modify a black cod or a crab trap and we put these cone bear traps in there with a live a clear gallon container with live bait in it in the middle and we are going to start trapping seals now so that uh instead of uh, we can't shoot in, uh, municipalities city centers mm -hmm. like where the rivers are so now we can trap them underwater there you go yeah i mean it's it's got to be a messy situation, especially when the urban centers are involved, for sure. You you definitely have a massive fight on your hands. Now, the other part of that, I was looking at your social media, all the different uses that you have uh, of the seal, like you're using every last bit of it. Um, but I, my culinary side of me, I love trying different things. Like, what, how does, how is seal meat? Like, can you, what is it like? It's very dark meat. Uh, it's uh, it's oily, but it's also very lean. There's a big, thick blubber layer, of course. And then, uh, uh, but once you get down to the meat, you pull out the back straps. Uh, I used to eat the, cut the flippers off when I was living in bush. I lived in bush for over 25 years uh, off northeast of Vancouver Island. And, you know, I didn't have a refrigerator, so if I wanted fresh meat, sometimes I don't eat deer. I really can't stand the taste of deer. To it's to my tribe, it was uh, considered slave food. Hmm. So we eat seafood and things. So I'd shoot a seal, and I used to take the flippers off, and I'd roast them in my uh, embers and by fire. 
pull them out, let them cool down, peel the charred skin off, and it looks like a human hand, and you'd be sitting there chewing all the meat off the knuckle, between the knuckles and the joints and that, and it's really tasty. It has a little bit of a fishy taste. Um, I don't like the big ones. Um, I like, the, you know, getting small, smaller seals on the rocks. I'll shoot those ones that are about uh, three feet long. They're like anything else. They're nice and tender, and they're not too gamey. Uh, they're good eating, though, definitely. If you like black bear, that uh, if you happen to eat a black bear that was eating fish in a river or lake and it has that little bit of fishy tang to it, that's comparable to seal. Okay. Gives me somewhat of a baseline. I haven't had a fish-eating black bear, but I have had black bear before. I enjoyed that. Pretty adventurous when it comes to foods. I like to try the sea lion once. Is a good one. Really? Sea lion, man. That's, that's, that's just like veal, cow. Hmm. That's really good eating, especially when you smoke it and jar it. So is there, I mean, you already have an uphill battle with just getting the the indigenous peoples able to harvest these and call these things, but is there any talk of like, you know, license, you know, having an actual like permitted licensed hunt to help these numbers for, you know, non-Indian people? Well, as I stated, I was a trophy hunting guide for decades here in British Columbia, so Knowing, you know, and in all fairness, yeah, the non-Indians of Canada, U.S. have to have access as well, you know, like coyotes and deer and other things. So I've been tasked by our fishing game to, I wrote a marine management plan, which I emailed you. You're free to email it to anyone you want, that package I gave you. But a marine mammal, the marine management plan I developed with uh, Dr. Jennifer Grenz back in 2018 and submitted it to the government. They declined it to give us a budget to harvest and sell uh, seals and sea lions. So we have to amend it. And they just got back to me recently where they really want me to amend it. So basically, I'm been uh, I'm going to be sitting here at the computer for the next three month, weeks to a month doing a business plan for that marine man- management plan, identifying all the markets and everything and the tax base for Canada when they start taxing people that are, you know, harvesting animals. But one of the main things I'm going to put in there is a recommendation that whether it be the fishing game DFO that manages it, and, you know, allocates quota to the Indians and uh, licenses to the non-Indians, for revenue generation like to do with uh, the wildlife for hunting and that recreational the same thing so that you know that in british columbia when you buy a sports fishing license for uh sports fishing everything's on there except for king salmon chinook so if you want a chinook salmon and they know you want a chinook salmon everyone wants to get mm-hmm. the big bragging rights with the 60 pound king so you have to pay an extra ten dollars and they give you a stamp of a chinook king salmon and you put it on your license and you have to cut the tag each time you harvest the chinook so they're making ten dollars plus on top of the license cost per person for the access to the king salmon why couldn't someone go in when they're going online or going to a sports store and say yeah i'd like to get the sports fishing license for 2023 i want the chinook uh, tag on there for ten dollars and i also want uh two seal tags for $50 each and they put it on their sports fishing license. And now they're going to, they're hunting anyway for in British Columbia, Canada, we have, you know, gun laws. So you have to have a pal possession 
an acquisition license, which is a card in your wallet that you took a course that you can handle a firearm and you're legal to buy bullets because you can't buy them without that card. And you can carry a gun now that you have the card because it's illegal if you don't have the card. And then, of course, if you're not an Indian, you have to get a core, the hunting course, and have that number and card with you when you're hunting. So when you go hunting, if you're not Indian and you have tags on your sports fishing license for one or two seals, of course you're going to have everything that requires you to do it legally in Canada. And, of course, you're going to have um, all of do everything within the safe discharge of a firearm and proper uh, way to hunt and harvest. So, you know, everything's in place in the government. There's just so chicken shit to take a pen out and sign off and say, okay, we're going to do this. You're going to generate, and that's what my business plan is. You know, when I do the business plan, it's probably going to show, com- I'm going to compare it to black bear uh, tags for resident British Columbians and non-residents who come with our guide outfitters to be guided on black bear hunts. We have all that data in the provincial coffers and I'll get that. And that's what I'll use my baseline. And I would imagine that with the black bear hunt in British Columbia, it's probably generates well over two or $3 million annually for the province. So if each state in the U S could do the same, you know, that's a lot of money that can go into conservation and hatcheries and uh, other things that they need money for. And here they're sitting there with their, thumb up their butt going, oh, we don't want to move on the seals and sea lines. God forbid that's political suicide. Yet they're letting hundreds of millions of dollars not be generated. Well, I think it'd be a really good double-edged sword too. I mean, if you raised money on a sea lion and seal hunt, you know, and part of the other thing they want to do is, is to help salmon is remove these dams that aren't really being used anymore. Well, you could take money from those hunts and allocate it for dam removal like that seems to make sense to me that you're gonna you're that's really gonna help the salmon then you know and then you look at the spinoff from a seal and sea lion harvest in pacific northwest the prime time to harvest them is end of october to the first of March. first of march because of cold weather and the thickness the hides are at their optimum thickness and if you're looking for weight they're going to be nice and fat that time of the year. Well, the spinoff for the hotels and the sports fish supply stores yeah, and the taxidermists sure. and the restaurants and the strip joints, you know, and the beer <laughs> things. You know, that's huge. You know, I see what my clients used to drink when I used to bring them to the strip joint and count River on a black bear. Here's the bear hunt. That's great. Uh, look, at some of that, um, like you got a, you got a seal vest on in that picture that you sent me. Um, it looks really soft. Uh, like what? What is what does seal fur feel like? I've never I've never felt it. I guess the best comparison would be a shaved beaver hide. Okay, I have a really soft. Okay, wow. and uh, comparable to mink as well. And uh, they don't have any guard hairs, and it's it's like I say, it's more of that uh, that uh, down hair we call it on on uh, beavers. But, uh, yeah, no, it's nice, and it, it is warm. Like, there's a couple times where, like, if you go to Pacific Balance Marine Management, you go to a bathroom and grab a beverage and sit down and scroll through the last couple of years over a couple-day period, you're going to see some neat videos. Like, there's one, I'm at a dock, and I'm wearing a seal vest, and there's 150 barking, roaring sea lions on the dock behind me, and I do this little talk. Well, it was 
cold that day. And when I put that seal vest on, the talking camera, I was just like, oh, thank God I brought my vest today. Boy, is it ever warm. (laughs) It it looks warm. I mean, there's there's a reason that they they wear it all the way up, you know, into Alaska and Inuits and all that. I mean, it it makes makes a ton of sense. We do need your help, though, if you're listening. Um, when you go to Pacific Balance Marine Management, you'll notice on the posts that I have a GoFundMe program. So the government won't fund us Indians to shoot seals and sea lions. God forbid that's political suicide. But it's legal for us to shoot. So you'll see in the posts that I'm doing that the GoFundMe program, people that care about their salmon and other fin fish and they want to see license come about because I'm a volunteer. And when I travel up Monday, you know, we're paying over $9 or over $10 in British Columbia for gas right now, a gallon. Oh so when I drive God. up in the SUV, it's going to probably cost me 300 bucks to go from Seattle to Vancouver Island back down and gas over the next uh, two weeks. You know, so I use that because I'm dealing with a lot of Indians. I go to, the, we have this store, it's called Canadian Tire. Uh, they don't just sell tires. They sell everything, mainly no food, though, but uh, a lot of sports stuff. Uh, that's where we buy our bullets, mainly, because all Canadian tires are on Indian reserves in British Columbia, which means we don't have to pay the provincial and federal tax on any purchase. So we save, like, uh, I think it's uh, 15% or something on a purchase if we go to Canadian Tire on Indian Reserve. So I buy Canadian Tire gift cards with the donation dollars that come in through the GoFundMe campaign or people emailing or mailing me a check. And I hand that out to the hunters and I mail it to the ones that are in the isolated communities throughout British Columbia. And I also buy uh, help some of the Washington State and other state Indians that are just shooting anyway. And it's, you know, it's because every seal that or sea line that is shot saves hundreds of thousands of salmon and other fin fish over a decade of its life. So we are cooperating and working together. And, you know, you'll see we raised, I think, almost over $14,000 in the last year. Um, All of it's been spent, of course, being used for the meeting last August with the senators. There's three of us went down to the meeting from Canada. And there's airline flights and hotels and food and travel. And we used 7,500 on that. And then the Canadian Tire gift cards and Visa and MasterCard gift cards for fuel for harvesters and hunters. So the campaign right now, I think we're down to about $1,000. So I got to have to get more funds for our hunters in the next week so I can get more bullets for them. Because Canada, man, I look at U.S., you walk in, buy a box of bullets. Sure, it's, you know, 20-something dollars. It's a hit. But go to Canada, you're talking $45 up for boxes Ooh, of bullets. Wow. It's crazy. Well, I like shooting a 338 Seiko, and man, it's $72 a box for me now. Oh my gosh. Well, then that crazy Trudeau fella, he's uh, he's trying to get rid of guns all just wholesale. But, um, what so walk us through like, uh, it, it, walk us through a hunt. I mean, is it, is it more just like driving around in a boat and kind of like, uh, is it the like ocean equivalent of the Texas guys killing hogs out of a helicopter, or is it actually more of kind of like a hunt? Um, actually, is like popping gophers. <laughs> we legally we can't have the motor in an operating 
conditions. So the motor's oh, got to yeah. be off. Uh, outboard's got to be off. I usually tell people lift the leg. And we just drift around where the seal rookery is and let the tide and wind push us in as close as we can. And, you know, if there's... I like having six or seven guys with guns all at the same time and someone going three, two, one, pin, we all squeeze off at the same time and, you know, get, you know, if you're going to shoot and make noise, one gun, you're going to scare off the herd, try to get half a dozen of each volley. And the way I, other way I like doing it is I like getting to an islet and uh, some of our islets, they might have five to 20 trees on them in the rock piles. And, you know, on the other side of the islet, there's a seal haul out rock. So you just crawl up quietly and you get up there and you sit there with your 20 cal and you just start popping them. Sometimes they won't even move. You know, you might get two or three before they all spook and jump off the rock. But then it's like, you know, when you used to go to the fair and you had that game where the gopher pops his head up and you got to <laughs> yeah. slam it with the hammer. Yeah. Well, then once they get in the water, that's what you're doing is gopher slamming <laughs> because you just the head pops up, poof, pink mist, poof, oh, pink mist, because you don't hear the bang underwater. <laughs> sure. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. I imagine trying to, like, actually harvest them at that point. I mean, you're, you're, that's probably not super high in your list. I mean, I'm guessing right now just getting rid of them is slightly higher than using them because you can't sell the stuff, right? I mean, what, what, what I'm pushing the Indians for is to freeze salt, uh, clean the skulls of everything you're shooting right now and to shelve it and store it. And then once you get 50 to 100 animals, then go to the – fishing game the dfo and say okay look we did what you wanted and that was what i was going to bring up now is uh fisheries has me pushing a sampling campaign to get for the scientists and fishing game to get the uh blubber uh flipper uh tissue uh stomach sample to see what they're eating and uh jaw sample lower jaw and whiskers so I have pictures of us doing the harvest there. We are sampling there a while ago. And uh, what we're doing is all of that is for, uh, you know, the scientists and stomach samples to identify how many salmon and other fish they're eating and what species. And that way we have a smoking gun and we can say, okay, 120,000 seals in British Columbia, they're eating uh, based on the stomach contents from the sampling program over a 12-month period. They're eating over so many hundreds of millions of our salmon. And then hopefully everyone will stand up and go, oh, my God, kill them all, except for 20%. <laughs> except <laughs> you know? for 20%. Yeah. So we're doing that. And then also I'm telling the Indian tribes, you know, it's in your best interest to take some of the randomly throughout your territories when you harvest, take uh, meat and liver sample and send it in for toxicity testing to to the laboratories for $60. And then when you get your report back and it's showing that it's fit for human and pet food consumption – then you can apply to the Canadian Food Inspection Agency for certification to sell it to pet food and human consumption. Now you've opened up your uh, meat and blubber sales. And how, how is that? Um, how's that conversation going with with the other Indigenous people? Are, are they are, are they pretty warm to the idea? Some of them are, but to tell you the honest truth, uh, over six, about 60% of our native tribes in British Columbia, 170 of them on the rivers and uh, coast, um, they're bought out by the environmental organizations. So they have these uh, campaigns like my tribe, 
wanted to have two areas created into conservancies. So the grizzly bears and black bears and everything else and the timber and the river is all protected and no one is ever going to hunt in there. And when my chief was selling us and pouring the Kool-Aid down my tribe members' throats on this six months ago, I said, what about uh, when I want to get a grizzly bear for food social ceremonial and I want to get a hide tan for the regalia so I can carve a cedar mask so when we have the potlatch ceremony and my son wants to dance and enter the society of the grizzly bear, which has been in our culture for tens of thousands of years, I want to go into what you're calling a conservancy to harvest. That's my grizzly bear hunting area oh, we probably won't let you. I'm like, well, go to hell because I don't need your permission because Canadian law says we Indians can harvest for food, social, ceremonial purposes in everything except for private property without permission and federal parks. And there's only one in British Columbia. And those conservancies don't adhere to a no-shoot area for food, social, ceremonial. So I don't care how many brown bags of cash you're getting under the table from those environmental groups for your conservancies, Chief. I will go in there and hunt my grizzly bears and anything else whenever I bloody well want. And if you don't like it, get someone to put stainless steel bracelets on my wrists and drag me into a police station, fingerprint me, photograph me, charge me, and I'll see you in court and I'll kick your ass. That's where (laughs) I stand on that. You know, you bring up a good point, like something, some misinformation that I think I've just, you constantly hear. And uh, this is just the environmentalists bolstering their argument. And now, and this should enrage you, but I've always heard that Native Americans don't hunt bears as they see them as a sacred animal. And I'm listening to you, and that does not necessarily sound like that is the case. Go to the archaeological records from your given area of the Indian tribe's territory, and you'll find the evidence there what they killed and ate. The bones are in those archaeological digs and those records reports. And I know my people ate everything and uh bear bones and seal bones and sea lion bones dolphin porpoise and even whale are prevalent within our archaeological uh, reports mm. from digs in british columbia and washington state so most of the indians nowadays you know i, I just shake my head and roll my eyes they're all hollywooded up and then environmentally poisoned from the kool-aid they've been drinking because they're getting brown bags of cash under the table you know mm. hey you indian Get your little tom-tom and put your furs and button blankets on and pound your drum at my protest in downtown this city and show that the Indians support us for stopping the wolf kill. Okay, but pay me 5000 Oh, not a problem. And we'll put you in a five-star hotel and we'll give you tickets to the hockey game. Gee, thanks a lot. Okay, I'll go down there with my family and we'll protest with you. That's what's happening. That's the reality. That was like a really, I don't know if you know this reference, but that was a really good, like, Bob and Doug McKenzie impersonation. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, that was that was spot on. I love Bob and Doug McKenzie. Well, I'm a speaker. Like, I've always been a speaker. <laughs> like, I was punished in 1988, <sighs> put into my abandoned Indian village with totem poles on the ground and big house beam remains and old houses with broken out windows and books written about Mama Lella Kula, village of the lost potlatch and go see these old fallen totem poles. I was put there to be the native watchman and I had to do, people wanted to know about my village. So I tell them, and you know, I was, you know, at first I was, you know, afraid to speak. And then pretty soon it became my stage where I walked to this abandoned native village with fallen totem poles and spoke for sometimes up to 14 hours a day, hour long narrative tours 
So for 16 years, I did that. So I honed my speaking skills. So when I was asked to help win the campaign for getting hosting the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver instead of the other countries, when I was uh, a member of uh, Aboriginal Tourism British Columbia, I was the chairman at that time, and I was on the podium speaking. And I've read the books of great speakers. So speaking is everything. And so when I stood there and I spoke to the International Olympic Committee and I said, this is going to be the first Olympics where the indigenous cultural component of we Indians will be incorporated in every part of the winter 2010 Olympics if you choose us. And guess what? We won. 2007, I found out in June. And the next thing you know, you saw 2010 Winter Olympics where speed skaters and hockey players were being slammed into the cushions and boards. And there were Indian designs. There were Indian pavilions. There was medals being awarded with my cousin's Indian design on it. So speaking, you know, and that's why I had this organization, because I can speak. And what I'm saying to the people that are listening Share this podcast with the people that make decisions in your hunting organizations. Get it to your Safari Club International representatives to say that if we're going to turn the tide on the environmentalist scourge, the worst invasive species to North America, the environmentalists, then we need to get Tom Seawood on podium because that guy can speak like Hitler. He can make the masses (laughs) believe that the environmentalists are the scourge and we must remove them. Well, I might be a sketchy comparison, but I'll, I'll let you go with it. <laughs> <laughs> always hit that nail on top, hit it hard with the hammer, yeah. emphasize the point. And, you know, hit, you know, when I read uh, books on speaking, they would always refer to Hitler because he was so well-trained. And he was also, he had a gift of being a good public speaker. You know, look at the tyranny he created because he could mm-hmm. speak. No, that's but true. He, he was in the opposite end of the spectrum a positive having a good speaker who's an Indian and bring in the Indian culture and heritage and them in as lobbyists. You know, you do have your North American Indians in government positions and using them to hopefully step up in Congress and go, look, we need a congressional hearing on the amending the obsolete North American Marine Mammal Protection Act or look, we need a congressional hearing on, yes, we have to use the science at, at hand. We have to call predators from time to time, as the Indians always did. Nowadays, most of the Indians are eaten from superstores and drive throughs and uh, uh, DoorDash. They're not going out into their traditional territories and harvesting and eating the bears like they used to or the wolves for the hides for clothing and so forth. So it's up to us, the hunters, Yes, it's recreational, and yes, we eat it. It's food as well, but we have the support of the Indians now, and they're lobbying with us, and we're getting change made, you know, and, you know, we're losing the battle. You know, every, i just seen something from British Columbia where they're stopping the non-Indians from harvesting um, caribou up in northern British Columbia. You know, if I was a non-Indian in that area, I'd be up in arms too going, no, I've been – my grandfather taught me how to harvest caribou. I've always have caribou in my freezer. And if we are going to stop harvesting caribou, then we have to harvest the wolves and the bears, and the Indians have to stop harvesting caribou till the numbers bounce back as well. Fair is fair. That's the way I look at things. What is the reasoning behind that, shutting down the caribou harvest? Are numbers taking a hit? It's because the environmentalists won with their don't shoot the wolves. 
and the wolf numbers are exploding. And, you know, you got to remember that up in the, uh, North America, the Indians were always harvesting coyote, wolves, and foxes, and wolverines. Wolverine, for number one, doesn't freeze. That's why you put mm-hmm. it around your uh, your uh, parka on the face and your gloves. And you know, for the war, the wool of the or the fur of the wolf. You know, not only does it look great, but it's very insulating. And you know, how many Indians do you honestly know who hunt wolves nowadays? You know, me, I yeah, used to have yeah. a five and a half foot pile of hides at one time when I was a hunting guide. But in all honesty, I've, I've heard of maybe half a dozen wolves killed by Indians in my territories in the last 20 years. They're cellophane Indians. All their food comes in cellophane now. Wow. And all the, and all the negative health effects that come with that too. Yeah. Oh, man, and it's, and it's, you know, you got to look at it from an Indian standpoint too. A lot of them are like, I tell people that, you look at me and you look between my eyebrows. There's, there's, there's no divot in there. I'm not a browbeat Indian. I've never <laughs> been a browbeat Indian. I never will be. But a lot of my fellow North American Indians are browbeat. You know, it's, you know, stay within the con. We made Indian reserves. So you stay within the confines of your Indian reserves. When we want to see you and hear you, we'll ask to see and hear you until then stay within the confines of the Indian reserves. And so don't get in our way. That's what we're accustomed to. So we need to all work together to break that uh, stigma that the Indians are stuck with so that they hear from the local fish and game club and the fishing club to, hey, can you come to our meeting? We want you to talk on this subject. We want you to work with us to get a wolf call going. We want to work with you to see an increase in harvesting seals and sea lions and so forth. And that's the only way we're going to affect positive change is when that cooperation and the positive dialogue is created between the Indian and the non-Indian harvester hunter, then we're going to be able to force our politicians to make those votes that we want to see and get those pen signatures out on the documents we need signed that say, you know, our hunting is still protected and always will be. Yeah. Well, hopefully some people in, you know, in my neck of the woods here that run their conservation groups and are trying to get a wolf hunt hopefully they hear this and maybe they'll reach out to you and have you fly out here and you can you can get on that podium and beat some oh, sense yeah. into I people of, I, I run another facebook group called sasquatch island i'm a sasquatch investigator um, because i lived in bush i saw them i know they're out there and uh you know it's in my culture and tribe my tribe it's our highest ranked crest is Junuk by the sasquatch but a good buddy of mine there lives in Minnesota, and he does investigations up in northern Minnesota. Yeah, I'd like to get out there and go look for some Sasquatches, maybe shoot a few wolves. Squatch hunting. Like, uh, all right. No, 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 no. Never hunt them. No, it's, <laughs> can't disrespect them. They're the other tribe. <laughs> squatching, squatching. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I have to admit, like, we'll, we'll dab, dabble our toes into these waters. So I have never had uh, a Bigfoot episode on the Full Scale Outdoors podcast. Um but so I'm very curious about it, but I, I will be very upfront. I'm quite skeptical, but I'm also oh, I'm skeptical, but I'm also open minded. Like I'm not I'm not going to poo poo anything. But so uh, make me a believer. Like like give me give me your number pitch. one. You and all the listeners are what I call bush dancers. I'm a bush dancer. We're so comfortable out in the bush world. We walk. We look. We hunt. We enjoy the viewscape. We smell. Well, you ever, 
hear a branch bouncing, you turn around, you look, and there's no bird, no raccoon, no possum, no bear cub, no cougar cub. And uh, the bush, the bow is bouncing. There's no wind. Well, we know as native people, that's the other tribe. And what they do is they pull a branch down. They're looking at you. They're what's what we call a lot of tribes call them the watcher, the Sasquatch. And they notice you're a bush dancer. You're comfortable in the environment that they live in. You don't trip. You're not sliding. You're not wearing uh, bright clothing from mountain equipment and co-op. You're wearing camo. You're wearing a high vis. You got a rifle, you know, mm. and they pull the branch down even further and they let it go and they turn and they walk away. And the bouncing branch is just to let you know that I saw you and I'm going to respect you and let you go about your business. I expect the same in return. And that's one of the things I found living in the bush for over 26 years. Three times I had boughs bouncing and there was no animal, no bird, no nothing. And then I realized that that's what it is. It's the watcher, the Sasquatch, just let me know that he saw me and he went about his business and I'll leave him too. One time I did run at the bouncing branch, lift it up, bust through the uh, undergrowth and lo and behold, I saw one walking away up a hill. Really? I've seen them. I lived out in bush. Like I lived off grid and bush for over 20 years. Like I tell you, when I lived bush, I lived bush. I went out there with uh, about 40 pounds in my pack and most of it was cigarettes and coffee. And that was about it. And I just, <laughs> And uh, low tide was there. My buffet table was out. I went down the beach like a Sasquatch or a bear, and I harvested crabs, clams, mussels, barnacles, you name it. And then when I was walking around, if I saw an animal, God forbid, if I was really hungry, I'd shoot a deer. God, I can't stand eating deer. But anyway, I <laughs> really? ate a few of them. Really? <laughs> I love venison, man. I love it. Oh, to me, it's like mutton. <laughs> also, well, I like that, too. Um, I, I, I eat a lot of crazy shit. But I would like... Um, that lifestyle that you just described, man, that sounds that sounds amazing. Like, just oh, it was beautiful. Like when I lived in bush, and like our bush out in British Columbia, we live in what they call a Broughton Archipelago. It's like over a thousand islands at the mouth of two inlets. And uh, you know, I had my wa water Harley. I called it. It was an eighteen and a half foot Gregor aluminum with a sixty horse Merc on the back at center console. Man, I'd be out there just cruising through the islands, and you'd see something you want to eat pull out the gun and get it or else throw a long line down or a hook down, get yourself salmon, halibut, cod. It's just great living out there. And, you know, you didn't have to worry about mortgages or car payments, you know, and then you needed money. You did your tourism, did your hunting guiding for, you know, spring bear hunt and uh, fall bear hunt and deer hunt. And then uh, wintertime, I used to watch logging camps when all the men went home for winter holidays. I would watch these 300 man camps all by myself, keeping the generators going. So I'm going to go back to Sasquatch here where my mind keeps going back to. So with all of our technologies out there, how are they eluding us? Like they're not leaving hairs behind. Every DNA test has never come back conclusive. We got all sorts of trail cameras. We've got all satellites. We've got drones. We've got thermal imaging. We've got all this technology. Like how are they avoiding it? They hate us. They despise us. They loathe us. They fear us. So you got to remember that, you know, we can go in that whole podcast on the subject of Sasquatch because I'm one of North America's uh, leading uh, speakers on the subject. But uh, the main thing is look what we've done to our environment fracking, clear cutting, creating farms, industrial farms, urban sprawl, mining, logging, and 
people wonder why the Sasquatch doesn't come sit with us at our fire and say, hey, pass me some bacon and give me a smoke. They hate <laughs> us, you know, and, you know, I was like that. I went rogue years ago. I had a basically our Canadian IRS sent me a bill for a hundred and over a hundred thousand dollars because I had a corrupt uh, bookkeeper and he didn't file my taxes properly and said I was an Indian. I didn't have to pay it. And I was a commercial fisherman making over a hundred thousand dollars a year. So all of a sudden I get this hundred thousand dollar plus bill. I went to all the specialists who told me, Oh, there's no way you're going to pay that down Tom. So next thing you know, I had a girlfriend go sideways and tell me to go that way with a bunch of <laughs> vulgar terms and now i just hate the world and i just put all my stuff in storage i got my cousin to bring me and my boat up to my traditional territories which you know there's very few people live there there's a few fish farms floating out there with some workers that run shift work and uh, half a dozen abandoned indian villages in a small community 20 miles away i went out there and lived and i went in the bush and then Times I would, you know, springtime, I'd go, hey, I'm going to follow the receding snow. And I'd go up into the Alpines and I'd just go, what we call an Indian, took a look. I'd go, took a look around. And I'd be up in the Alpines and, you know, and one time I was up there for well over four months. And I remember being there and I was out of tobacco, I was out of coffee for quite a few weeks. And I could smell coffee and cigarette smoke. And as I was walking down the hill, I could hear a woman's voice twittering and chirping. And I did like a Sasquatch. I pulled the branch down and I looked and I saw them, a forestry crew in the middle of Timbuk flipping nowhere, enjoying lunch, cigarettes and coffee and sandwiches. And as much as I wanted coffee and a cigarette, I just let the branch go back up and I turned and I walked away. I didn't want to have any human activity. So that's how deep I went into bush, you know, and mm. I just lived out there, you know, me and my gun and my knife and my fishing gear. And, and then sometimes I'd have a, one of my do- dogs with me. But to me, it's uh, when I first got together with Peggy here in Kent, Washington, I guess that was around 2012, 2013, when I come out of bush, that's where she met me. And I'd be here in Kent, Washington, and I'd be looking out the window at the trees and uh, Mount Rainier, the when it was clear day and I could see the volcano, Peggy would go, Tom, you're looking at the inv- wilds again. Go Canada, go north, go do your thing. I'll be here when you get back. I'd pack up and I'd go to Canada. I'd grab my uh, bush kit, disappear for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And 2015, 2016, I went to the Northwest Territories and I worked up there and lived up there in a bush resort doing uh, demonstrations to tourists for ice fishing and uh, fishing in the lake during the summer. But basically I was in the middle of Timbuk flipping nowhere up and close to the Arctic. And I loved every minute of it. Instead of watching TV, I was out there in snowmobiles or else walking miles through the spruce forest. So I'm a bushman. I know why Sasquatch isn't being found. They don't want to be found. They don't like us. And But if you open your eyes and your ears and your nose a little bit in the bush, and you know, I know it's hard for the Americans, but try to go there with a firearm, a pistol. You guys can have, not us in Canada, but put a pistol and a Ziploc baggie and a belly bag and no rifle and no camel and go out there and use your hunting skills, you know, hone your hunting skills. And you'll be surprised what you're going to smell, hear, mm-hmm. or see. And you're going to realize that 
my God, the other tribe is out there. Tom was right. If I look like a hunter and I'm a bush dancer, they're never going to show themselves. But if I come out and change things up and turn the table on them, I may just smell them, hear them, or see them. Well, I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to do that go bush. <laughs> I mean, the times that life is, you know, modern modern life has gotten stressful and tough. It's like, dude, I just want to disappear into the woods. Give me a oh, one, yeah. give me a no, one room, know. a one room log cabin. I'm in northern Minnesota. I'm good. Let's go. Like, <laughs> come to town every yeah. once every two months. Get supplies if I need it, and then just you know disappear. Oh, back I lived the life for Riley when I was a grizzly bear hunting guide and other animal hunting guide. I, we were on a 97 foot yacht in British Columbia's coast. I had my own stateroom downstairs. I had uh, a jet boat, aluminum. Two fiberglass 18-footers with uh, 60 horses on them. And we'd have all these Safari Club International members fly in or water taxi into us out in the inlets and bays. And I'd be cruising around on that 18-footer, standing up with my binoculars, looking at the beaches for bears because the black bears and grizz come out on the beaches at low tide to roll over rocks, eat the crabs and eels and bullhead fish underneath and other things. And that's how we bear hunted mainly, or else we're cruising up and down the uh, logging roads where the loggers hadn't been there for a couple of years. You know, sometimes we got on these roads and we bring a landing barge in with our pickup truck and I'd speedboat to that logging road system. And I'd have over 60 miles of logging roads and open log slashes all to myself. And man, did I ever get some big hat racks for some of the clients, black tailed deer. Mm-hmm. And they tried to make me eat that stuff. <laughs> That's just crazy to me. That's what. I'm oh yeah, we'd be sitting at the yacht table it. there. They'd all be eating their deer schnitzel. They'd look over at me. What the heck, Tom? How come you eating the chicken TV dinner? I don't eat deer. I slave food. <laughs> slave food. That's hilarious. Oh my god, it's so good. All right, so I I understand why they don't like humans. Sasquatch. That 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 part makes sense to me, but how are they avoiding like our technologies, like satellite imagery, thermal imagery, <laughs> trail cameras? Like I can get, like I can understand them being in tune and be like, okay, there's people over there. I'm not. I want. I'm. I want nothing to do with them. I'm gonna. I'm gonna stay out. But when we can basically remote view them from outside of the Earth, like how how are they avoiding that? They're not avoiding it. It's a lot of people have a closed mind to the subject of Sasquatch Bigfoot. But if you do, uh, like me, you know, I, I do Sasquatch investigation tours. Um, you know, I, I'm the first human to ever do a commercial boat tour for orca whales, killer whales in British Columbia when I was 15 in 1980. That same year, I would do the first ever commercial boat grizzly bear tours up into the inlets. And I, in 1981, I participated in the first ever fiberglass sea kayak paddle with the whales expedition in North America and British Columbia waters. Those are now multi-million dollar industries for the world, basically. They do whale tours in Norway and other places, Australia, New Zealand, Tasmania. So I participated in that. And then I would build an empire when I wasn't commercial fishing in ecotourism, whale watching, sea kayak trips, uh, grizzly bear tours. I had a 32-foot 
brand new aluminum water taxi built for me, 12 passenger with a bathroom on board, uh, twin uh, D70, uh, 370 uh, Volvo Penta diesels in it. I used to call that my water Lamborghini because that boat cost me $260,000, same price as the Lamborghini in 2004. But I made thousands in ecotourism. And I got sued in 2007, and I lost everything. And uh, afterwards, I made a decision that I wouldn't rebuild my empire again. I would just be what I am right now. I do West Coast Native art. Uh, You'll see it on Sasquatch Island, my Facebook group, where you can email me. And I do all kinds of West Coast Native art right now in front of me as I'm talking to you. I'm drawing a, a black bear out of West Coast Native art for a fur wood bowl that I have over a thousand of these bowls given to me by a master lathe uh, turner who's gotten an accident. He'll never turn again. But anyway, that's my canvas, my medium. And they're really beautiful bowls that I sell. And I'm a leader for Pacific Balance Marine Management. I do Sasquatch investigations. I go to conferences all through North America for Bigfoot Sasquatch. I do television show productions of Sasquatches. I star in Netflix, Bigfoot Girl. I saw in that movie. The movie sucks, but my part's pretty good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, you know, I'm making money with Sasquatch. And uh, to me, whale watching, sea kayaking, grizzly bear tours is all late spring through to early fall. And then in British Columbia, Pacific Northwest, winter kicks in and they call it the shoulder season. No one really makes money in tourism during the fall, late fall through the early mm-hmm. spring. Well, Sasquatch season in the Pacific Northwest is during the winter because they're on shellfish beaches at night. Uh, Three years ago, we videotaped with a FLIR uh, Scout 2 mono lens. We videotaped for 16 minutes, 40 seconds, a huge bipedal FLIR target on a beach at low tide harvesting a type of shellfish called uh, chitin or limpet, I mean. So... I got a trail camera picture where a trail camera was knocked off a cedar stump and you can see the trees spinning through a few frames. And then the last frame is a Sasquatch. It's a blur squatch, but it's a Sasquatch with its right arm reaching towards the trail camera. And it's looking into my trail camera lying on its back on the ground. So if you go to the Facebook to the Sasquatch groups and there's hundreds of them, and you look at how many members they have and you go to some of the big ones like uh, uh, Bigfoot sightings or Bigfoot research or Sasquatch Island or BFRO, you can see enough video and trail camera pictures to make, uh, you know, a valid decision on do these things exist or not. And a lot of people now, especially now with TikTok, and if you search on TikTok, Bigfoot or Sasquatch, there's some guys that have all of those video clips. So you can go to their TikTok and look at all of the videos and stills of Sasquatches, Bigfoot, Skunk Ape, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, a knowledgeable hunter is going to probably come up with the same conclusion that I have and others that, hmm, these things actually are out there. Maybe that thing I smelled that time wasn't a skunk. Maybe what I heard that time, because what Tom said with that bouncing bow, maybe that was a Sasquatch. Maybe that track I didn't think was a bear track, but it scratched my head. Why would a human's track be so many miles out where I'm elk hunting? 
And I never saw any other hunters or tracks, but here I found this track that looked humanoid. Maybe that was a Bigfoot track. So it's, it's one of those things where you got to keep an open mind. And, you know, it's one of the things, you know, it's easier to say, ah, they don't exist. It's all hokum and BS. But then if you do the research and you're a hunter and all of a sudden you put two and two together, you might too come up and go, wow, maybe those two times I had those strange things happen. Maybe that was a Sasquatch. Maybe well, they for, are. Tom I, for said, sure, I for sure want them to be real. I, I for sure, like, I think it would be fascinating. Like, just that would be great. Well, you're going to, you know, if it does happen, you know, how many hunting guides right now during the winter time in North America shut down because it's winter? Well, now if there's snow on the ground and, you know, now maybe they can start going to field and taking people out for $500 a day on Sasquatch expeditions like I am and others. There's more and more Sasquatch investigators coming up. You know, back in, two th- in the early 1990s, if you came to me and said, Tom, I want to hire a go to a company and go on a British Columbia hunting trip to get a black-tailed deer and a black bear. I'd probably scratch my head back then and go, gee, maybe you might want to go down to the U.S. because I know they do it there. In the early 90s, I didn't know there was guide outfitters in British Columbia, you know, because I never had a reason to know about it. Mm -hmm. But then when I did find out and all of a sudden I met one, he hired me the next day to be his assistant hunting guide. And a week later, he fired the head hunting guide. And I became the head hunting guide for years. I worked with him on that yacht. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's another industry that we hunters can break into and tourist operators. Sure. I, I, there's, there's big demand for it. And people that are into it are, they are into it, boy. There's no well, doubt about Minnesota, that. Apparently. You guys got a lot of them up there. <sighs> That's what I hear in the northwest part of the state. It's and it is pretty remote up there. That's for sure. A lot of bog swamp stuff like that. So, oh yeah, uh, you know, big grizzly bears. Like a lot of when I used to take people out grizzly bear hunting, you know, we'd be in a logging truck and they were like, "Oh, this is gonna be so easy to hunt grizzly bears." I'm like, "Hey, we're just I'm just showing you the area. We're not gonna hunt out of the truck." And then next, you know, I get them in a pair of chest waders and we'd walk across a shallow spot on a river go across a huge sandbar, go across, uh, go up a little tributary off the main salmon river. And they're like, how come we're not hunting grizzly bears out here? Look, there's a mom with two cubs, you know, a quarter mile downstream. And there's a big, a bigger male up there, but he's not trophy. He's fishing that ruffle. I'm like, you're, you're paying me big money to be your hunting guy. Shut up. You're going to spook the bears. Follow me. <laughs> and I bring up this little side tributary through the devil's club covered in thorns, teaching them how not to get thorned up and under salmonberry and huckleberry bushes and blowing down alder trees. And I bring them up this ditch and there's salmon carcasses with the eggs sucked out, chewed out and big grizzly bear tracks. And all of a sudden I stop them and I point. And there would be a big grizzly bear lying on his belly on a sandbar. And it looked like a backhoe went through and made this ditch. But it's just a tributary spawning area for the for the salmon. But that grizzly bear went in there. He knows it's so thick, he's going to hear any other animal come in there to his fishing spot. And he's going to take out that animal or scare it away. Most times scare it away. But he's going to have his private fishing spot with four inches of water where he's just lying there in his big belly farting and burping. And every time a salmon goes by his nose, he just reaches out with his paw, grabs it, pulls it to his mouth, chews the 
eggs out of it or the tasty part behind the head, pushes it aside and waits for the next one. And all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, I got to get them up. And I, ooh, ooh, ooh. And that grizzly bear would stand up because most bears are right-handed. He put his right paw down and he'd turn and look over his left shoulder towards us where I made the noise. And then I'd watch him spin, sniffing the air, and I made my judgment call. He was a trophy. He had no mouse chews on him from chewing his hair off, so it made a lousy cape. And he had no sap rubs where the hair is all stuck with spruce sap. I made his judgment call that he was a trophy and he was in good condition. That hide was in prime condition. I'd look at the client and I'd go three, two, one, because I trained him. And as soon as I whispered, pin, he squeezed his trigger and quit squeezing. And as soon as I heard three shots go, that bear was still moving. I was boom, 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 four in. And next thing you know, I had a thousand pound grizzly bear for my client. Oh, and he my was high fiving me and giving me my $5,000 American tip. And Ooh. usually I used to, back then they didn't have camos. So I used to go, I, do, I want your camo jacket as a tip. And they'd be peeling their jacket off or their pants. You can have it, Tom. Thank you for a successful. <laughs> wow, that was a big bear. Oh, oh I've shot some biggies, boy. That, I've uh, bear hunted once here in Minnesota unsuccessfully. But I, something else on the bucket list I'd, I'd need to do. I'd love to get out to that out to that Pacific Northwest. I've been in Oregon uh, one time, but never really spent high-quality time up there. But the pictures and the videos just that looks absolutely gorgeous. Um, well, you guys better come to Vancouver Island. I can't be a hunting guide no more because all the laws and everything, and I'm not working for any of the established companies. But, uh yeah, you can come out with me, and uh, you know I'm allowed to hunt grizzly bears. But you know, someone wants to come out and watch me. And my son's name is—he's 22 years old. His name is Galaji Hunter Seawit, and it translates to English meaning "big grizzly bear hunter paddling towards the chief giving potlatch." And he wants to go shoot a grizz here uh, this year or next year. But yeah, if someone wants to come out and oh, I participate with me and you know see me shoot a grizz, you're more than welcome to Man, come with me. I wouldn't. Yeah, I'd just help. I don't have to be the one pulling the trigger. I just like to experience. I actually like to to experience some of what we talked about earlier. The just the the seal calls and watch you process a seal. I mean, how how many people have get a chance to to see that? That think that would be pretty amazing. Well, like I say, the GoFundMe program, you know, part of the money that I saved from it is for political purposes. So um, I sit on the National Canadian Seal and Seal Harvesters Association, and uh, they've invited me to go be a lobbyist to the Canadian government to get the Marine Mammal Protection Act changed so that Canadians and Americans can hopefully see the day soon where we have tags allocated for seals and sea lions. So, you know, like someone supporting the Sables Foundation of Safari Club International because they help indigenous tribes get water and solar power in the world. You know, donating to Pacific Balance Marine Management's uh, uh, campaign, GoFundMe campaign, that's lobbyist power too. That's me going to Ottawa and going to hopefully Washington, even going down to Olympia, Washington here. You know, $5 a gallon for gas here in Washington right now. But, you know, if I can make a meeting and go down for a day and meet with the senators in Olympia, Washington, and get them to push harder at state level for, uh, you know, amending that Marine Mammal Protection Act, you know, that's what Pacific Balance Marine Mammal, uh, Pacific Balance Marine Management is all about. 
it's a lobbyist group to get our hunting rights for seals and seal lions. So that's one of the ways of looking at it. First step, the Indians getting the right to sell the stuff we harvest. Next step, getting the laws changed so that we can have it like coyotes and deer. Right. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm all I'm all for it. I think you got an uphill battle, but I think you might be the right man for the job. Um, we're going to have to really change the minds like i said political suicide so you almost need to kind of change public um sentiment first so that it's not political suicide and i well, i don't i don't know how you go about doing that but having conversations and hopefully getting more exposure like this and just educating people on on what's going on i mean these environmentalists you know they have at some point in time they have to make a choice like you're you're choosing one life one animal life over another do you want salmon to go extinct or do you want seals because you, you know it's, it's, it can be one or the other but well yeah though no, i'm we're gonna win it like i never go you know sun Tzu. you don't go to war battle unless you know you're winning the war and you're gonna win the war and so when i was asked in 2018 to lead this campaign you know i put my pros and cons down my uh, partner here, Peggy, she was a systems analyst for a big, uh, well-known corporation in Washington state. So she did the post-it note whiteboard with me and we ran all the pros and cons and I made a valid decision. I'm like, yeah, I'll take on this campaign because I know we, we've won the war. We might lose a few battles and skirmishes, but ultimately we will win the war. We will have the Remammal Protection Act changed. We will have tags for Canadians and U.S. state and provincial residents to go hunting them like they do coyotes and deer. So, you know, like I say, it's, you know, not something I just did of uh, whim and uh, just to chasing butterflies. I, this is, I sat down in my war room and looked at it and, you know, said, yeah, this is a winnable war. Let's do it. And, uh, but we're going to, I need support, you know, and that's what Pacific Balance Marine Management is all about in our Facebook group. Please go to it. Please ask to join. Please sit down and scroll and read and educate yourself. Don't just look at one or two posts go into it and see the different posts and videos I've made and uh, media articles and podcasts and you name it, I've been in. And you'll notice one thing, the environmentalists are silent on the seal and sea lion issue compared to other campaigns. And the reason for that is because I've sent them notice. I will nuke them. I'm not like Putin that pulls him my finger with the red button. I just push red buttons right away and go after you, environmental invasive species. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, Tom, I appreciate your time. Um, yeah, I'll I'll make sure I have all that stuff listed in the show notes, and uh, I'll definitely share it. And I got some homework to do to to. Uh, I joined that Facebook page today, so I'm gonna peruse that a little bit, and I might even have to check out some of your Sasquatch stuff. Okay, yeah, it's from Sasquatch Island. But yeah, please join Pacific Balance Green Management, you listeners, and uh, please hit that share button with the posts and get it out, especially to your hunting or fishing organization heads to communicate with me. You'll see my business card on a lot of posts, and uh, and you have my contacts, my cell number for Washington State, and my one for Canada. And uh, communicate with me, and let's change the tide, and let's get rid of the invasive species of North America, the environmentalists. I'm, I'm all for that. I'm all for the extirpation of those invasive species, for sure. All right, Tom, thank you very much. Have yourself a good night. You too, thank you. And don't forget to send me a link. I will do that for sure. 
Okay, I'll talk to you later. You bet. Bye-bye.